This is C. Gabriel with Mythic Deviant and part three of The Shapeshifter. The Shapeshifter as a game changer. I want to note that the stories I'm telling are stories. They are not purely historical events. They are based on truth with a capital T, which is the essence of what it is to be human. They are arguably not based on little t truth, which is events that happened in a specific order in the physical world. Many of these stories are told in a variety of ways. There are even storytelling caves where they put up lots of different pictures of different variations or different scenes in a myth so that the storytellers can put them together in a different way that best serves the people who happen to be there. Different people at different times need different stories. But the same archetypes and conflicts arise again and again because they're inherently part of the human experience. So... I may tell the same story differently, or you may have heard the same story differently, and that's appropriate. The one story that speaks to our hearts at a given time is the one that meets at the present stage that we're working with. The others reveal capital T truths, but we might not need to hear them right now. They're still good. We might want them later. They can be filed away for future use. Back to the shapeshifter. The shapeshifter is about change. Deep, lasting, true change, not just the illusion of change. And this time, we'll look at how it's used to change the world. It's a little dire. Again, I'm starting with the second person. I don't just do that because I think it's funny, but I do. Sometimes we just need to make an example out of someone, and in this case, we're going with Nairobi. Thebes is having a major party in celebration of Latona, Latona is the mom of Apollo, the Greek sun god, and Artemis, the Greek goddess of the hunt, and she's one of Zeus's many exes. She's a titan. Niobe arrives on the scene and is deeply offended. People just don't worship her enough. As the queen, she expects more from her people, so she lets her feelings be known. What are you people doing worshiping someone who you have never seen and may not even exist? I am the one who rules this place, and I rule it well, if I do say so myself. I am beautiful, I am happy, and I have everything I could ever want. If anyone deserves worship, it is me. Besides, I have seven daughters and seven sons. Surely that is evidence that I am better than the outdated titan who has only one of each. I am seven times as worthy of your worship as she is. As one might expect, Latona is not thrilled with this. She calls her kids, Apollo and Artemis, do something she says she's humiliating me. And her deity offspring come through. Artemis takes her bow and arrows and shoots each of the seven daughters dead. While Apollo takes his arrows of death and disease and gives the sons a slightly more lingering but still swift end. When their father gets home and finds all of his 14 children dead and or dying, he too takes his own life. Within days, Niobe finds herself alone. In her heartbreak and stupor, she begins to sob and to walk and walk and walk until she turns into stone. To this day, she sits as a huge stone on Mount Sipolis, weeping eternally for all she has lost. She is shapeshifted by another. Her life is transformed to teach us a lesson, to teach us that all things gained can be lost to teach us that gratitude is a safer choice than pride, to teach us that humans, no matter how fortunate, are not appropriate objects of worship. This is the second-person use of the shapeshifter. 
It's a game changer for her and everyone around her. For the first person version of the story, I'm picking Quetzalcoatl. As a child, Quetzalcoatl watches the annual sacrifices. A volunteer, usually someone captured from a war with another tribe, is taken to the top of the pyramid. The chief lays the person across the altar, takes his sacred blade from its hollowed case, raises it to the sky to bless and purify it, then plunges it into the volunteer, ripping out his still-beating heart and holds it up as an offering to the gods. This assures that the rains will come, the crops will grow, and the community will be blessed. As a young man, Quetzalcoatl is fierce, brilliant, and deadly, so he is groomed for the throne. The first year he's in charge, he easily selects a captor after all he'd been at the battle and the young man's father had killed several of his men. He walks him to the top of the pyramid. He lays him across the altar. Shaking, he takes his sacred blade from its hollowed case and, with the rage of a young warrior, he raises it to the sky, blesses it and purifies it, then plunges it into the volunteer, ripping out his still-beating heart and holds it up as an offering to the gods. Then he shakes for a really long while, even after having a stiff drink. As the first few years go by, this becomes easier, and at his third annual sacrifice, he is cool, competent, and professional. He has no need for a drink, and he continues to lead his people in their wars against the neighboring tribes. But by the ninth year, he is becoming weary. He has seen too many of his own men die, and he recently had to kill a young man who too closely resembled his brother, so he preys on this extensively, and from there he begins to lobby the council. The sacrifices, he argues, can be made in time, animal, and grain. There is no need for human life to be involved. The gods, he claims, are satisfied with the care and attention of the populace. They do not require its blood. But the council box. We have always done it this way. The gods need fresh blood or they will turn on us. So that year, Quetzalcoatl does as he is told. He walks his captor, a healthy young man who he has learned makes beautiful art and sculptures, to the top of the pyramid. He lays him across the altar. Shaking, he takes his sacred blade from its hollowed case, and with the trepidation of a man who has seen too much blood, he raises it to the sky to bless and purify it, then plunges it into the volunteer, ripping out his still-beating heart, and holds it up as an offering to the gods." And he continues both his prayers and his campaign. He concentrates on increasing the rituals at other times of year to take the pressure off the annual sacrifice. And he leads people in deeper and more frequent worship. As he insists to the council, it is time to do away with human sacrifice. And as the event approaches, he argues passionately that there is enough death in the world and that what they really need is life and the way to get it is by honoring and respecting the lives they have. But the council disagrees. If you love your home, if you love your community, if you love your people, you will do as we ask. You will do this sacrifice. So when the day comes, Quetzalcoatl walks his captor to the top of the pyramid. He lays him across the altar, and with a strong and steady hand, he takes his sacred blade from its hollowed case. He raises it to the sky to bless and purify it, then plunges it into his own chest and rips out his own still-beating heart. And Quetzalcoatl is no longer a chief. He's now a god. He's a god who ended blood sacrifices and whose return we still await. He's sometimes referred to as the Mesoamerican Christ. 
And many other stories would have worked here, too. Achilles, Tyr, Indra, Odin, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, Sita, Loki, Rosa Parks, or any other of the thousands of gods, heroes, spirits, and people who have laid down their lives, literal or figurative, so that we can live with a little more depth, a little more awareness. Jesus is well heard of in our culture, but far from alone. Even now, there are homeless folks sleeping in the park, uncomfortable, hungry, and uncared for. They are dying for our greed, fear, and self-righteousness. We can go outside and watch them die for our sins. But this is so dire that we're doing one last shapeshifter story. On to the Norse. In Norse mythology, there are nine worlds. We live in Midgar, in case you ever get lost on Yggdrasil, the world tree, and need to find your way home. The gods we know today largely live in Asgard, which is the realm of the Asir, the gods of human conquest. There's also Vanaheim, the realm of the Vanir, the gods of human nature. This realm birthed the old gods, such as Frey, who's the green man or the nature god, and Freya, who's the goddess of love, sex, and death, the giver and taker of life. Predictably, the power shift is not gentle. There's a war between the Asir, the residents of Asgard, and the Vanir, the residents of Vanaheim, and it's ugly and ends in a mutual hostage situation, which is how Frey and Freya make it to Asgard with their dad, Njord, who is the god of beaches, edges, and margins. Because how cool is that? But tensions run high for quite a while, even after the trade. One day, a hearty-looking gentleman comes into town and offers his services as a builder to construct a great wall around Asgard so that the Asir, with their impenetrable defenses, can become rulers of all nine realms. Odin, the Allfather, asks about the conditions. After all, there have been a lot of wars, and he'd really like to have a good defense. The gentleman requests a year for completion. Freya, the aforementioned sex goddess, the sun and the moon as payment. This displeases Freya greatly. There's another story about how she came to rule over death because she started out with just love and sex, but I think this one may have something to do with it as well. Anyway, Loki suggests that they drop the time frame and insist that the builder can't have help. He suggests that the builder can't make the terms that way and they'll get most of the wall for free. But the gentleman agrees under the condition that his horse can assist. And man, that horse can build. The horse and the builder whip the wall into shape, and it's looking like they're going to complete on time, which is thoroughly unacceptable to Freya, as well as others. They freak out and begin to bodily abuse Loki, who insists that he has a plan and flees. The next day, when the builder arrives with his steed to finish the end of the wall, a sultry young mare awaits him. And his horse, who he needs so much, takes off after her. The steed finally returns the next day, but the terms have not been met, and the Asir do, in fact, have a free, almost complete, wall. The builder complains, but at about that time, Thor returns from a tour of giant fighting and instantly recognizes that the builder is secretly a giant. They fight, Thor smacks him around with Mjolnir, his hammer, and that's how things pretty much always end with Thor. But Loki, our shapeshifter... Odin is also one, but he stayed put in this tale, is missing for a while. He returns about a year later, leading a cult, Slepnir, who has eight legs and the ability to travel anywhere through any medium, even the realm of the dead. Loki presents Slepnir to Odin, who is further empowered. Loki has shapeshifted. He's changed into the mare, altering himself at a cellular level. 
He saved love, sex, and the natural world. He protected Asgard through its new wall, and he's empowered Odin to conquer the remaining outliers in the Nine Realms. Loki unquestionably is a god who learns, and the lessons that he garners along the way, including the way the Asir attacked him when he was under stress, including what it's like to be left alone in the wilderness, pregnant, and including the way he gave away his child for the good of his community and met with only disrespect, very likely comes into play and will contribute to his role in eventually bringing down the group. He shapeshifts by choice of his own accord and he saves his world at a huge cost to himself. And I believe it's fair to say that he will never be the same again. So how, when, and why do we shapeshift in service to our world? For some of us, there are things which we are willing to trade in our current lives for. For others, there are not. Each of us can reflect an archetype, but some of them are so strongly embedded that we couldn't cast them off if we wanted to, while others are a distant reach that we can barely stretch to. For some people, they make sense. For others, they seem crazy. We're all right. The shapeshifter, like all other archetypes, is a superpower, and it can achieve super results at a super price. And sometimes they're worth it, but use with caution and wisdom. Next time, a little more chipper, the love goddess. Until then, author responsibly.